interview someone who knows a little bit about the Far East. I believe my my new friend Claire Lopez is on the air, and she can tell us a little bit of what I and many others are talking about, why and how did China unleash what I believe to be bioterror on the United States. And I do believe that the professionals in our world really can't admit it because it means war. So you see, Claire wrote an article. Claire, how are you? Good evening. I'm fine. Thank you. I hope you are too. Yes, we are doing as best we can. I'm fortunate that in my private life, I have a a vital business. I own a hardware store, so I have not been shut down. So I've been able to keep my employees employed and offer important services to my community. So I'm limited. I'm also... uh, I'm limited to how much this coronavirus affects me, but at the same time, I understand that, I don't know if you agree with me, but this is like a little bit overdone, and I think the Chinese understood what we were, how we were going to react to this coronavirus, and your article in Newsmax magazine pretty much clears the, clears the way for the evidence that, in fact, this might be a, this might have been a game plan from the get-go. Yeah, nineteen. Your articles uh, in the seventies they were to adhere to, to call it quits under Nixon to adhere to call it quits to biological warfare and offensive weapons, and apparently they've been or they've been ignoring that. Do you think the United States has uh, also been ignoring that? The um, the biological weapons convention. Uh, that's the uh, the short name that it, it sort of goes by. Uh, it's a longer one. Convention on the Prohibition of the Development, Production, and Stockpiling of Bacteriological, Biological, and Toxin Weapons and on Their Destruction is the full name, but we'll just say Biological Weapons Convention. Um, it opened for signatures in 1992, and it entered into full force in 1975. The United States had a biological weapons program up until uh, President Nixon... Uh, in 1999, ended that program, completely ended 
uh, legally uh, the ability in the United States to conduct offensive uh, biological uh, warfare um, research. Well, you said Nixon and 99. Uh, you mean that it was uh, penciled in in the 70s and then it, uh, it became full force in 99? No, 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 no. President Nixon ended the U.S. program in 1969. Oh, 69, 69. I heard 99. I want to make sure. Biological Weapons Convention uh, opened for signatures three years later in 1972, entered into force in 1975. The Chinese, China, the People's Republic of China, yes, um, became a signatory to that convention, the Biological Warfare Convention, uh, in late uh, 1984. But according to my research, uh, Pentagon uh, reporting states that China was believed to have had, have or have had, uh, an offensive biological warfare capability um, well past 1984, in fact, until through the late 1980s uh, at least. So that puts it definitely in violation of its signatory obligations under the BWC, um, uh, certainly by the 1980s. Um, many people think a lot later than that, and the others, uh, you know, reports and so forth that I cite in my article, uh, it is called, by the way, Coronavirus Didn't Spring from Nothing, published this morning uh, on Newsmax in, uh, at my Newsmax.com blog. Okay, but after everything you're saying, are you just being politically correct and saying that this was by mistake, or do you think... No, 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 I really think it was an error. I think it was a mistake that got out of the lab uh, when it did, because, and this is my reason for thinking this, I don't know it, but I think it, I, I assess this. I think it was an accident, because I don't think the Chinese, I don't think the uh, the CCP, Communist Chinese Party, was ready for this stage of the warfare that they fully intend to conduct, are conducting. But I don't think they were ready for this stage of it to be launched just yet. Well, I mean, how about if I pose this idea to you? I think it was precipitated I think it it, it uh, accelerated their time their timetable their planned timetable and now uh, they have had to scramble uh, to uh, to advance that timetable okay but why would um, knowing communist governments like we do here in South Florida like for instance when Sarah Palin said that she could see Mac uh, Russia from her window people here in South Florida kind of understood what she meant because here in Miami we can see Cuba from our window. And we just know that foreign policy right outside our doors here really impacts us locally. So I'm, I'm assuming that Sarah Palin meant the same. So when we know I, I was raised obviously anti-communist. My parents lost a lot in, in Cuba. My, my parents came here and created the American dream and all. But we know that underlings in the Communist Party, if they don't like Jinping uh, and they're in the secret deep state like we have here in the states, well, the communist states— they can unleash this uh, just by cloned animals and and call it a leak. But I'm not really saying that the premier and the top of the Politburo would have approved something like this because obviously they they unleash holy hell on the world and they realize everybody realizes that they had a lot to lose too. But at the same time, you must admit that if these underpinnings, these you know these deep state folks in the Communist Party uh, want to qualm. Or calm down the Hong Kong protests, damage the dollar, buy American companies cheap, 
uh, reset the table on trade to negotiations with the United States, uh, discourage uh, Europeans from even being as bold as uh, Trump has been. You can see how in a country of 1.4 billion, you can see how a group of very politically minded, very powerful people underneath, you know, let's say the second layer of Communist Party officials, you can see how they can unleash a biological weapon in this manner from a... a In China, in the Chinese, within the Chinese Communist Party, the biological weapons labs um, that are part of the network in China uh, are directed and controlled from the top. It is very hierarchical. It's very authoritative. And nobody just goes off and does what they feel like at the moment willy-nilly because they hate America. That doesn't happen in China. It just doesn't happen. So how how would a mistake happen like that uh, where... years ago, 2018, officials from the United States Embassy in Beijing were concerned about the Wuhan Virology Institute and uh, went there to have a look at it with a specific regard to its safety protocols. And when they came back and wrote the report, it showed that they were very concerned about the laxness of those protocols and safety precautions. In other words, that the lab was not uh, up to snuff. Uh, is a BSL, a, a biological safety um, uh, lab, four level. Uh, its precautions were perhaps more on the level of a two or a three. So there, there's, there's that on the record already from, from the United States Department of State. Um, there are anecdotal stories uh, that scientists, researchers from that lab uh, sometimes would take animals that had been used in experiments and research out of the lab to sell in a market, in a meat market, uh, for cash, uh, just just because they're so poorly paid. Uh, that's anecdotal. Uh, well, so so uh, so when you when that we know of that could be considered carelessness or lack of uh, good safety protocols. So you think there was a pro- there? Are you saying that there's a profit motive or it's just general sloppiness? Well, it could have been both. We don't really know. This is the thing. We don't really know because although the United States has requested officially um, multiple times since this pandemic broke out to send representatives of our CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, to the lab, to Wuhan Virology Institute, uh, their, their request to visit has been denied. So we have no eyes on that, that laboratory because we're, our, our officials are denied uh, a visa to come and uh, to, to meet there. Now, when you were uh, you were a career CIA officer in some capacity uh, in your earlier career, or recently, or a long time ago? Uh, a long time ago, and the answer is yes, I was. Okay, so when when if you could talk about this in public, but when when the American government looks puts their eye on on Cuba, don't, I mean Cuba, on uh, I'm thinking all communists are together here on China. Uh, there's a certain limitation of what we would like to understand, but we've got a general understanding of how communists operate, and the loss of life is not high on their totem pole. I mean, they don't really—I mean, they, they, they kill millions to get to power, so what's wrong with killing a, a million to stay in power? Well, there's nothing in, in, in their um, uh, ideology, their, uh, their, their strategy um, that would prohibit that at all, no. 
But, however, they do have a timeline. This is a very disciplined thing. This is not willy-nilly. They're, they're, they're not just going off and shooting at the hip. Yeah, but, you did, but you did mention General... The time frame that they have. And uh, I do cite at the end of my article... Yeah, General Chi. <laughs> uh, yeah, I cited my uh, article at the end of uh, the Newsmax article about a secret speech uh, made by a senior uh, China defense um, department. He was the... Yeah, Chi, uh, I have the article Chi here. Hoshan. Yeah, Hoshan in yeah, 19... Uh, in, this, His speech, yeah. um, which probably occurred, we're not quite sure, but somewhere in the range of maybe, maybe 2002 or 2003, um, that speech openly referred to uh, strategic plans by the Chinese Communist Party to destroy the United States and to kill Americans using bioweapons. Yeah, clean up, clean up America. By that special- is what is in the speech with a quote, clean up America. Well, you know, that that leads me to a, a, a question that I, I like to pose to you to see if you can uh, find credence to what I say, because I wrote it in a book that um, I that I wrote back in 2013, where, um, you know, there's there, there's a serious quest. If, if this gentleman, this defense minister says something like that this late in the game, why is it I'm not to think and I'm probably the only person thinking this way. It, that now that the Soviets are, are, are waned away from Cuba in some capacity, even though they're still there, it makes sense for this bridge to be connected between their threading, making a threat on Taiwan in exchange for manufacturing Cuba. Why, why couldn't that be on the table when the benefits are great for China in reducing? Well, they very well may be doing that. They're certainly doing that all over Latin America. The Chinese have established a presence all over Africa and many other places. It's part of their overall global Belt and Road Initiative. Um, yeah, where they build up the infrastructure. It's called the String of Pearls, which means um, uh, control, acquisition of control of various port facilities around the world. So, yes, this is happening in many places. Yeah, and, and they they basically loan you money, chain-to-chain infrastructure projects to... to to uh, basically tie up all the links in the supply chain. Uh, do you have any evidence that perhaps the Malaysian company that controls both sides of the political uh, of the Panama Canal has some Chinese tie to it? Because this would facilitate my story at the Port of Mariel. I mean, the special I zone there. Do you know about that particular Malaysian company? No, I don't. I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, I mean, certainly the Chinese are, are, are seeking to establish a presence in so many different places. I mean, why not Cuba? They're, they're everywhere else. Yeah. Yeah, and, they're, and their number one export are Chinese people, and our number one export is dollars. And we found out last night, um, I particularly understood this already, but the, the nation found out on Fox News that, that a lot of American pension funds and 401ks are investing in companies that are traded on the New York Stock Exchange, but our Chinese who invest in military-grade armaments. Yeah, you're talking about the thrift savings plan uh, into which many uh, in the military, United States military and, and uh, other, other uh, departments, other agencies of the U.S. government um, deposit uh, savings, funds, uh, over the years. Um, but uh, that, that thrift savings plan uh, was due to be... Um, allowed uh, among a group of investment vehicles for China, for communist China. 
Um, but it, it appears that President Trump uh, has been alerted to that and put a stop to it. So good thing on that. Really? And is that, is that done by executive order? Uh, wasn't that by statute? Well, sure, because this, this is talking about a U.S. government uh, investment program for U.S. government employees. That's oh, yeah, and he's commander-in-chief, so he can shut so, it down. Uh, yes, he put a stop to that. Wow, and that was early in his term or just recently? No, no, no it's only very recently, within the last few weeks. Wow, so he must have got, he must have got Maria Bartiromo's uh, 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 tape. Of the show, and sometimes I think the government's run by you know uh, watching TV on, on Fox because Fox seems to be. No, so- I will tell you what happened. Um, Frank Gaffney, the executive chairman of the Center for Security Policy, um, has been uh, on a campaign to try to um, uh, alert the U.S. government, alert Congress, uh, congressional members. This is the uh, same Frank Gaffney that was head of Homeland Security. policy, and he has been trying very hard for a lot of weeks, many weeks, to bring this to the attention of, of appropriate congressional members and the U.S. government, and it appears that he finally got through, and I think that is how it happened that President Trump then put his foot down and said, no, this isn't happening. Well, that's uh, that's uh, very comforting. Now, what prevents other private companies to do the same thing and invest in these private uh, of these Chinese companies that are listed on our stock well, exchange? Private companies may, but we are talking here about um, U.S. government officials, U.S. government official agencies and organizations, without the consent or perhaps even the knowledge of of the uh, the employees themselves as to where their uh, retirement investments were going to go. And that was a huge problem. But because it was a U.S. government retirement uh, investment vehicle, thrift savings plan, uh, the U.S. government had the authority uh, to shut that down, to block that. But private companies, that would be another issue altogether. Yeah, I guess so. It would be much more complex. And there doesn't seem to be a moral uh, <laughs> a moral compass when it comes to making those decisions. So how, what do you think will be the... The I shouldn't say the total outcome, but what should we see next about China um, addressing Trump in a manner in which you think they've changed, they've turned the tables on this country, or do you think that Trump is just going to stay, stay the course like he said today in his news conference? Well, in very many ways, um, China has stolen a march on us, and I would refer um, you and your listeners to a very good article, an essay by David Goldman, uh, in, the, in the brand new uh, spring 2020 edition of the Claremont Review of Books from the Claremont Institute in California, the article is called The Chinese Challenge. And it, it, uh, it's a long and a very detailed article that repeats a lot of themes that David has been emphasizing for quite some time. And that is that we, the United States, uh, at a private level, private industry level, uh, academic level, academic institutions, in other words, universities and labs and so forth, uh, and the U.S. government have allowed China uh, to get away uh, with an awful lot, uh, to the point that they have stolen their way, stolen intellectual property, coerced private companies, American companies and others, who want to do business in China, coerced them to turn over their intellectual property in return for the uh, ability to access the Chinese market, which, of course, is coveted by many, uh, for all of these things. President Trump has been talking about this since before he even began his campaign or came down the escalator. 
Um, yeah, he's been he's been quite visionary. David Goldman uh, is that China has gotten ahead of us on a whole bunch of things right now uh, in in high tech, um, uh, certainly in um, in uh, artificial intelligence, uh, in space technology, I mean, a whole range of things. Yeah, five G. In addition to the fact that we have allowed China um, to become uh, the producer of too many things that we are reliant on for national security, as we now begin to realize, not just high tech and things that are going to go into 5G, for example, but also uh, medical supplies, pharmaceuticals, uh, drugs, our, our, uh, our pharmaceutical prescription medicine produced in China. I think we're beginning to realize that that is a situation that cannot continue. But the point that David makes Goldman, David Goldman, again, Claremont Institute, um, is that we're playing catch-up. We're turning out graduates by the thousands every year in gender studies and underwater basket weaving, while the Chinese are turning out engineers, computer uh, 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 engineers, high-tech technicians, um, physicists, um, you name it. Uh, There's no way we can continue to compete especially versus the numbers of 1.4 billion population in China versus ours, maybe 330 million or so right now. Yeah, they have a, they have a million they have a million engineers. Both yeah. India and China graduate a million engineers a year in, and a percentage of those have to come to the foreign markets to work because they don't have work at, back at home. I'm sorry, uh, who, who has to go to? Well, there's, there's two stats I'd like to share with you. First of all, the, the stat that you and I agree with, uh, uh, Chinese graduates a million engineers a year, so does India, and they don't have a million, uh, um, a million jobs for them, waiting for them uh, of, of any type of high salary. Then you have only 78,000 engineers graduating from American University, but only 28,000 of those 78,000 engineers coming out of our universities are coming out of American high schools. So that means that... The other 50,000 are also a combination of Chinese and India in the United States. Foreign students. Yeah, Foreign exactly, students, yes. That's exactly so. Yeah, so how do you think we're going to how do you think we're going to catch up? And join American industry, but a whole bunch of them go back home or to other places. And they take the technology we taught them with them. <laughs> and also the with them sometimes just because of their education, which is excellent here in the United States, but also sometimes stolen, a lot of times stolen. So the point being that, that we're way behind. We need a Sputnik moment right now to wake us up and begin to get out of our slumber as regards China. For a long time, many senior U.S. officials in the State Department and academia and elsewhere thought that by encouraging China to join uh, the world uh, trade organization, to join the world in, in, in free commerce and trade and, and welcome them into these circles, that of necessity that would automatically uh, lead the Chinese Communist Party leadership towards a more representative and democratic style of government. Well, of course, it didn't. Yeah, of it course not. It didn't, it didn't work in China or the Soviet Union. <laughs> yeah. Um, they took it um, and ran with it, but never, never moved, um, you know, a, 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 an inch towards a, a more open or uh, democratic style of, of, of society. And they're not going to. Um, and I think if we read their writing, and this is this is becoming uh, more available, um, a lot of excellent writers. I'll, I'll mention Gordon Chang. I'll mention um, 
Uh, of course, uh, you know, the uh, 1999 unrestricted warfare. I'll mention, uh, of course, Sun Tzu, who's, you know, 500 B.C., Art of War. I'll mention Michael Pillsbury, the 100-year marathon. Um, Robert Spaulding, retired U.S. general. Well, uh, tell me a little bit of the, hun- no, uh, of the marathon. Marsh, a bully of Asia, it's called. Excellent, all of these uh, recommendations. Never mind also, by the way, David Goldman, anything he writes about China. Uh, worthwhile spending the time to read that. Now, David Goldman, what role did he play? Uh, this was before his Claremont uh, Institute participation. Was he an agent as well in China? Where did oh, he get? He's a financial uh, expert. Uh, he's a banking and a financial expert, and made his career uh, in the financial, uh, uh, you know, uh, realm. So he understands, um, you know, the commerce, the trade, the finance part of things, the banking, and how things were taken advantage. He understands all of that. But he also served in a worked in a bank in Hong Kong for a time, uh, very close proximity uh, physically, geographically, of course, to China. Um, and so he understands China very, very well and writes about it often at, uh, in particular, AsiaTimes.com, AsiaTimes.com. But this particular essay I'm talking about called The Chinese Challenge is at the Claremont Institute this month, I guess, coming out. It's, it's the summer 2020 issue. Now, do you feel that uh, that the people in, in Hong Kong are, are starting to flee to to the, the, the free world? Do you believe that the people who enjoyed freedom in, in Hong Kong um, are about to flee Hong Kong? They don't feel like there's... I don't see that. No, I don't see that. They're still fighting. So um, you, don't, you don't think the economy is going to implode as a result of this? Well, I don't know if it will or won't, but I don't see them fleeing. I see them uh, standing their ground and, and continuing to fight for their liberty. Um, and I, I, I really hope that we and the rest still support them in that. So you don't see another, well, then you, uh, are, do, am I to assume that you believe another Tiananmen Square is coming in, in Hong Kong? I'm hoping not. Um, not necessarily so. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the crushing, the, the liberty-crushing weight of, of the Communist Party is, is coming down the boot on the neck of, of Hong Kong. There's no getting around that. Uh, because Britain, Britain abandoned it, um, you know, however many years ago that was. Um, you know, they've been left to fend for themselves largely, but it's amazing the spirit of the people of Hong Kong and their, their commitment to fighting for their freedom. Uh, it's, it's inspiring to watch. Yes, in the early 80s, uh, I was there for about 50 days or so in the summer. So I, uh, I went to uh, a company, a friend of mine who was going to Hong Kong High, and I got to see the spirit of the, it, it was kind of like an imperialist uh, Western society spirit among Chinese people. And, you know, believe it or not, the, the Brits didn't really stand out there, even though they were in, it was basically their, their economy, their society, their norms. But it was really beautiful to watch how good old free market capitalism functioned in the Orient. And that also was the same in Macau to a smaller extent um, in the Portuguese island just down the way there. And I always thought um, I was actually staying in a journalist's home. So I got access to a bunch of information at dinner time and got to speak to the father who was an editor of the Miami Herald. He passed away now. But uh, I got to see all this as a young person with my eyes wide open. And I was politically inclined, so I was actually paying attention. And, yeah, I agree with you that the Brits uh, didn't want to stand tough enough, and they started negotiating back then. In fact, this gentleman, his name was William Montalbano, um, he was he was put over there to cover this, 
and I believe the, the formal takeover was 1997 or so. Yes, I think that is the right date. Yes, it is. Yeah, and uh, I don't know how to, to to what degree the Chinese are willing to undermine their entire beautiful banking business that goes on in Hong Kong just to calm bunk, uh, young people, freedom-minding people. I don't know. Are they willing to shed blood and, and devastate the economy? And these people I, would have the means to flee Hong Kong and get out of Hong Kong by every way possible. In fact, they could end up in Taiwan, which would further my my uh, my game um, my order of things. I you don't believe to switch the subject a little bit. You don't believe that since uh, since Taiwan did relatively well in protecting themselves from the coronavirus. You don't think that the military actions presently going on in the East China Sea has anything to do with threatening Taiwan? Of course it does. Absolutely. I would never say otherwise. Um, clearly, the, uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party rulers uh, want to lay claim to the entirety of the South China Sea, which is not their territorial waters, overlaps with the territorial waters and exclusive economic zones of, of other countries, including Taiwan, uh, Philippines, Japan, and, and uh, otherwise. Um, but they're flexing their muscles there. They've built up these uh, these uh, sandbar islands uh, and, and created military bases on them throughout the South China Sea. They think that they have a, um, a manifest destiny, to borrow a term, um, to expand into that territory and to expel. This is their objective, to expel any influence and military presence of the United States. Now, these are international waters as well as uh, the the waters belonging to offshore waters belonging to these other sovereign nation states, um, but but because of the view that the Chinese leadership has of itself, going back maybe five thousand years, that they deserve to be the hegemon of the entire world, that they deserve to be the middle kingdom, uh, the one kingdom of the world. This is how they think of themselves. Yeah, they have those nine. Uh... Because of their history, they think that the last few centuries, during which the West rose up in technological supremacy and military power, um, that, that that is an aberration. And, you know, given their extensive thousands of years long history, one can see why they think this way, but that they have uh, now, they believe, the time, the opportunity, uh, but again, on a, uh, a calculated timeline to reverse these last few centuries of the West's rise to, to power. And they think that they are on the verge of achieving that right now. But there is a timetable, and I think that the escape of this virus um, threw that timetable off and made them scramble uh, to try to catch up. Well, now, let me turn this one on you, because I, 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 don't, I don't really, uh, since, again, I'm, you know, I'm child of, of people who fled communism, so I'm not really in agreement with what you're saying. And at the same time, I'm I'm aware of the fact that you have a lot more you're privy to a lot more information than I would be, especially having uh, worked in intelligence. But don't we have to factor in? And we haven't talked about this yet. Maybe we can expound on this. Uh, when China looks at the United States and sees how far the opposition party can go with something as farcical as impeachment and Russian collusion and all that. Why wouldn't the underlings in China say, you know, uh, nobody really has a grip on how this stuff is going to work anyway, so let's just unleash it and solve all these problems in our minds and let the chaos begin because 
the Democratic Party of the United States will carry the Communist Party of China's water in the press and blame itself for coronavirus in the United States. Why? Well, it- I, can't, I can't be sure, of course. This is only my, my judgment, my assessment. Um, but the reason I think this way um, is because the, 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 the Communist Chinese Party wanted to see the West more debilitated, more taken down, uh, perhaps Trump even losing the uh, re-election bid in November coming up before they would be ready for a knockout punch. And if you read Chinese history and and you read Sun Tzu and and uh, its its military strategy, uh, for, for example, as outlined in the 1999 unrestricted warfare. If you read all of those things. Um, you understand that they will not make the decisive move until they are, at least in their own minds, uh, certain of victory. And they will not even necessarily alert the, uh, the enemy uh, of their intentions um, until they are ready for that knockout blow that they think they're going to be certain of victory. Because to do so is to do what's happened now, to, to unleash... Um, the the animosity, the hostility, the backlash from the entire world. Yeah, finally, the entire world gets it. <laughs> on China now, and it's not just the United States. It's Europe. It's it's all over the world blaming China specifically, and not only blaming China and the Communist Party for what they've done, but beginning to pull back. I mean, even just market forces are doing this, pulling back production industry uh, presence in China. I don't think the CCP planned for that to happen right now. Yes. Uh, and the way you spell it out, it, it, uh, it's very hard to disagree. But at the same time, the math is the math. And the CCP um, is an enormous apparatus who can't possibly control all the elements of his apparatus all the time, especially... Oh, yes, they do. Oh, they, yes, they do. Even over the course of 100 years? Because... You know, uh, their revolution was mid-century of uh, this last century. Well, that is the title of Michael Pillsbury's book that I mentioned a bit ago called The 100-Year Marathon. And it is the Chinese Communist Party plan to use the 100 years between Mao's 1949 revolution and the year 2049 to achieve that global dominance, to achieve that hegemony. Uh, but we're in the year 2020. So they're really close. They're not ready yet for 2049. They did not have their ducks lined up. But yes, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, insofar as its own hierarchy, its own uh, infrastructure, its own membership, has an iron, iron grip on its own people. And Xi Jinping probably has a more powerful grip presence and... and, um, even a, a cult of personality than anybody since Mao Zedong himself. Well, is he also, um, is his background engineering like the others, or is his background military? Yeah, it's not military, but I would have to check and see what his actual degrees were in. I think he's an engineer, because... Uh, so, but understand that anybody who arises um, to that top level of the Communist Chinese Party is the cream of the cream of the cream of the nth percentage, point zero 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 one percentage of Chinese society, given that it's so large, 1.4 billion. So for somebody like Xi Jinping to rise to the level that he has means that since the age of, I don't know, 10 or 12, he has moved in circles of pure 
brilliance and nobody else, only brilliance all around him, and yet he arose to the top. So this is what we're up against. Now, you know, do they actually, when you say... ...studies and goodness knows what else we're turning out here in the United States. Do you feel that, that uh, what you just described, uh, Xi Jinping's upbringing, does it, does it include cloak and dagger, or is it all educational, philosophy, inspirational, well, communist... It's all of the above. I mean, certainly to begin with, um, it's a mastery of China's own history, China's own background, China's culture... Um, and as he would have moved on up through the, the grades and, and the levels, whatever his own discipline was, probably was engineering, that, of course. Um, but, but then after that, as he moved into politics, um, you know... That's where the cloak and dagger comes. <laughs> ...and a, a, a preparation for higher office, uh, you know, in the pure ruthlessness of, of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, it, it, it just seems to me that... Life and death is really not an issue. They, you know, we think in decades. They think in centuries. They have those nine, those nine tribes of China, which are basically nine dynasties, and God knows how many der- uh, uh, dialects of Chinese, Mandarin, uh, Cantonese, and all the others. It doesn't seem to me that um, they don't uh, they don't really operate like us Occidentals do. We don't we don't really think like these people do. And I'm not so sure, uh, I agree with you that the iron grip is there, but I'm not so sure that it can't slip out of their hands like a moment like this where things just get out of control. Do you think that we can change our supply chains fast enough to avert uh, a, a 2049 uprising in China against the United States? Well, it's not an uprising in China against the United States. It's the un holding of a 100-year plan step by step by meticulous step. That's what they're doing, and that's what they're going to continue to do. But as to your question about the supply chain, um, you know, as I mentioned before, market forces of the rest of the world already are, are, are impelling um, uh, commerce and industry and companies uh, to change their behavior. Uh, in addition to which, um, governments at the government level, for example, in Japan, and of course here in the United States, are offering things like tax breaks to companies that would relocate production and manufacturing back to the home country where labor charges, of course, would be higher, but to offset that... Yeah, we would subsidize. Japan and and, uh, the Trump administration uh, will be doing that as well to help those companies, to incentivize them, in other words, to to bring back the, the manufacturing capability back home. Yeah, it, uh, what's really unfortunate is the, here's the libertarian side of me here on the Concrete Conservative. By the way, you're listening to WSQF 94.5, the Concrete Conservative show. And we uh, kind of like to bring things back home. But ironically, I mentioned you earlier between uh, uh, the similarities between Taiwan and Cuba. They're both the islands are 110 miles away from their respective coasts. And as far as the Chinese is concerned, they think... They believe that Taiwan is American Taiwan, so why not have Chinese Canton no, no, Cuba? No, 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 no. The Chinese Communist Party, the, the leadership of China, considers Taiwan a breakaway province of China. Yes, yes. So that, I'm not. I'm not disagreeing. I'm not disagreeing with that. But right now, uh, to to un, to Chinese control. I understand. So we have a defense pact with with Taiwan. We have pledged officially. We have a U.S. government pledge to protect Taiwan. Correct, and that's what I meant, that uh, 
Chinese the Chinese people as, as much as uh, they believe it's a breakaway province. I'm, I'm, it's very clear to them that they could press our buttons and force us to defend Taiwan. Therefore, I call it American Taiwan. And we also have uh, ironclad banking interests with Taiwan. And a lot of what we buy in China actually are bills of laden and lines of credit extended from Ta- uh, American and Ta- Taiwanese banks to mainland China for just the ordering of goods and services that we buy from them. So th- it's much more complicated than that. We really have something to lose in losing Taiwan. And ironically, the first immigration pact from Ch- um, Kan Chai-shek when he lost to Mao Zedong back in 48 was the island of Cuba under President Carlos Prio. Carlos Prio extended an immigration pact that brought 100,000 uh, Kan Chai-shek supporters to to Cuba. There was a there was a little China, there was a Chinatown in Havana and everything of a, up to 100,000 people over time. And we're talking about, you know, in the 50s, so not so long ago. And uh, it's been, it's dwindled and dwindled. But today there's a huge facility outside of, uh, outside of Havana. You can see it from afar, from a causeway, you know, from a, sorry, not a causeway, a turnpike. You can see a huge uh, fortress of buildings that are all Chinese people. And there's some 50,000 people in this community, and they're kind of like their own little city and everything. And I believe uh, that they are the engineers and, and organizers behind the special industrialized zone in, at the port of Mariel. So you will, you will promise me that you will look into, uh, you know, ZEDM. You can Google it. You can see what they're building there. The, the, the girth, you know, the, the, the girth is larger than the port of Miami. It was built by Obrechit, uh, the construction company out of Brazil. The two semi-socialist presidents of Brazil were behind this 100%. And the Bank of China was behind the, the Bank of Brazil. And right now, I believe China, oh, uh, Cuba owes China about 4 or $5 billion, which is uh, really consistent with you know, cheap loans that China's famous for extending to third world countries and then put them in debt and then take over. And then, of course, the finishing the finishing uh, product is just the logistics of it. I can see China manufacturing with Chinese bosses, uh, Cuban workers working for, I wouldn't say dirt cheap, but definitely better than they're living now. They'll, they'll live in a 128 square mile free zone called ZDM free zone. And... Products will be manufactured there, and I think that's how they attack the United States by 2049, now that you said it. Well, I don't know about attacking the United States from Cuba. That's probably not going to happen. No, I don't mean militarily. I mean culturally. Of, of, of a, a free economic trade zone there um, is, is similar to a pattern that we're seeing all over the world, as we said earlier, uh, that China is, is, is getting a foothold, um, <clears throat> not, not just economically, but um, uh, an actual presence. And, of course, as you say, the, uh, the loans become too burdensome. China knows this. They know that the, uh, the ones to whom they've extended the loans won't be able to pay it back. And uh, then they take uh, ownership of whatever the piece of infrastructure may be, a, a road, a, a railway, a port, and uh, there they establish their presence. So I'm sure that's what's, that, that's what's going on there in Cuba, too. Yeah, yeah it's called the Marielle Special Development Zone, and uh, there's also a train comp- component, just like there was on the Silk Road, where the Chinese are building the train component on the Silk Road to connect the Orient with the Soviet Union and warm waters in between. 
And uh, it seems like this is all happening right before our eyes. And if they do have a plan by 2049, um, it might not be militarily. Uh, that would be that would not be a good. I don't think that would be a good war for their from their perspective. But a dominance of our economies and dominance of Latin America squeezing us out of business in Latin America. Because do you believe, like I do, that the United States, in its obsession with terror and the Middle East and Europe, they've neglected really fortifying the U.S. dollar and business interests in Latin America and allow communists to, to basically fester in Latin America to the point where I believe America denied its manifest destiny to bring back that term when they concentrated and, and, and excluded Cuba from it in 1959. From that moment on, Cuba has destabilized Latin America, and you see it here with the 25 million illegals uh, destabilizing you know, middle-class labor wages. How about that angle? Can you can you somehow, in some way, uh, lead your credibility and your credence to this argument? And perhaps there's something there that I'm saying that maybe you can come back and, and comment about this angle I'm taking. And you can go to my site at uh, cantoncuba.com and you can read how I pencil and piece these teas together. And although I didn't include coronavirus... I did include liberals as progressive virus, <laughs> and I call liberals progressive virus throughout this chapter of my book, well, throughout the book entirely, and I find it ironic that the coronavirus has the same you know, virus at the end, but I think I'm onto something, and I'm thinking outside the box, but it's a bigger box, and it's not the right side of history, and I'm really happy that you've given me uh, my homework to do with a bunch of things I need to read, uh, the 100-year the, the marathon, the unrestricted warfare, the Chinese challenge. Um, this is going to be exciting for everyone who's listening to our our radio station right now here on the Concrete Conservative Blink Radio, WSQF 94.5 with Claire Lopez. Claire, what do you think is next for you? Are you going to continue writing or are you going to get back in, into intelligence service or work for a think tank or do you presently work with a think tank? Well, I, um, I have um, put in the paperwork to establish my own a company called Lopez Liberty LLC. Uh, it's wending its way. The paperwork is wending its way through the system. Um, and I intend to continue, yes, uh, to write, to uh, to speak, to teach uh, lightly, uh, doing more webinars than anything in person, of course. Uh, but maybe that will continue even, uh, even after things begin to open up again. Uh, and that's what I want to continue to do, certainly the writing. Um, but on topics, uh, you know, my, my focus of, of, the, of, of recent years has been the Middle East. Right, but yeah, I see that your articles Iran, have to do with Iran, uh, yes. Uh, Israel, certainly, uh, Turkey, and so forth. And then, of course, the, uh, the presence of Iran and Hezbollah in Latin America and uh, encroaching on the United States up through collaboration with the Mexican drug cartels and across the border, our southern border, into the United States. But more recently now, I've been on a very steep learning curve with all of those uh, those uh, books and so forth that I mentioned to you there. And uh, I am still on my own learning curve, but uh, more time available to read uh, these days. And so uh, that's what I'll continue to do. Yes. Now, uh, do you feel that this coronavirus threw you off Iran? Because you're, uh, you have a great deal of articles that I have to commence reading. Uh, you, at the time of... This coronavirus, you were insisting um, uh, as far back as December 2017 that uh, you felt the weakening of Iran and that Trump should do something about it sooner than later. And now it's been put on the back burner. Or do you think we're, we're still? We well, our focus is certainly on Iran. Uh, 
certainly <clears throat> shifted. I mean, as as necessary. I mean, there was no other way we had to, uh, and our leadership, our government, the Trump administration had to to shift attention. Uh, you know, uh, full court uh, to the coronavirus and, and, and the pandemic. Um, so all of our attention has shifted somewhat in these last months. But uh, I do remain, uh, you know, very much um, involved in Middle East uh, issues, and uh, I will continue that focus too. Okay, so here now give, us a, give our audience a little bit of tidbit. What really happened between Trump and Bolton, and why was he given the exit, or did he actually resign, as he said? Um, On his own terms or pushed out? They they simply uh, came to a parting of the ways. I'm sorry to see it, I have to say, because I think uh, John Bolton is is one of the the most knowledgeable and insightful of all our foreign policy um, uh, advisors and officials um, that have served. I thought he uh, was doing a a terrific job at the National Security uh, Agency. Uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry, the National Security Council. Um, but, um, eh, you know, uh, two very uh, sort of type A kind of uh, uh, operators there, Donald Trump and John Bolton. And um, Well, one's a neocon. I mean, Bolton, you would agree that Bolton's a neocon and he has no problem with going into war and fighting and sending... Oh, I would not say that at all. No, of course he has problem with going to war. Any sensible person has problem with going to war. Good okay. grief. So you you don't think you don't you don't think that was a factor in his dismissal that maybe he was trigger happy and he, and Trump really doesn't want a war. Wait, Trump, I wouldn't uh, use the term trigger happy for John Bolton at all. No. So he's a more measured person. Very sober advice. I think he was a brilliant um, uh, analyst and observer um, of of foreign. I mean, he wasn't a domestic policy guy, but of foreign policy, in particular the Middle East, Iran, especially. Um, but also elsewhere around the Middle East and, and around the world. I, I, I think he was brilliant. Yeah, he, he was always very measured and, and articulate in his, in his talks, but he did have difficulty when Bush wanted him. He had difficulty getting approval. What do you think, uh, uh, getting approved by the Senate, what do you think seems to be his uh, ax to grind, or, or maybe I should better phrase this, what do you think the Senate's problem is with him and giving him so much difficulty to get approved formally as a senator, as an ambassador, not as a senator, but as an ambassador? Why is it that he always, on the diplomatic level, he can only rise certain to a certain level before someone has a problem with him? Is he... Is he uh, He's outspoken. He is um, extremely knowledgeable, as I've said. He's very uh, firm. Um, in his um, his um, approach to laying out issues, he's plain spoken. Uh, you know, this is not the way of Washington D.C., which is more about mealy mouth uh, weasel wording. Yeah, there, there. I agree with you. Everybody's got. Everybody's basically got. Uh, they're all actors. Everybody's just acting there. How proficient he was he on these issues we've been talking about in relationship to China? Did he uh, before any of this occurred? Had he taken a position on what China might? Uh, might do. I think he had a very good understanding about uh, China and uh, the the uh, strategic plan of the Communist Party of China, and also next door, um, the, you know, the North Korean regime in Pyongyang, Kim Jong Un. That's true. He made he made uh, bold statements in North Korea 
because uh, we had forgotten about that because he's been quiet lately. Has he, has he written anything that perhaps the audience should look into? Because I haven't heard much of him lately. Uh, what do you believe he's up to now? You mean Kim Jong-un? No, Bolton. Or, or he was disappointed that they, they didn't have him testify in the impeachment hearing. <laughs> that would have been a fantastic uh, book-selling opportunity for him. Um, considering if he would have testified, do you think he would have protected his president or he would have uh, thrown him under the bus? That was always an, uh, a question on my mind. I, I, I personally I thought— He would have spoken truth. It's not about defending any official or another or throwing somebody under a bus. When you're under oath before a congressional committee, you are there to speak truth, and that's what John Bolton would have done. And that truth would have been? Could you give us some insight on that? Because I don't know what we that truth— I don't tru- know because he never appeared. <laughs> so you don't know either? I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a mystery uh, to, to all of us how all this stuff plays out. I have—I uh, I would love for you to— uh, Lend me a hand on my idea to see if my my idea is completely out of left field, or that it has some credence. Because uh, are you hearing my idea for the first time? Is this the first time you hear of of the Port of Mariel and the special uh, development zone? Yes, it is the first time. I had not known about that before. And you know that that the Port of Mariel is the second deepest port in all of Cuba. The deepest being Guantanamo Bay. It's a very strategic place for an economic zone to be under Chinese control, certainly. Yeah, and McKinley landed there when he entered into Cuba uh, back in 1898. He chose the Puerto Mariel to, to militarily, uh, I, I don't know what to call, I don't know if you call it a full-fledged invasion, but it's a submarine port today where the Soviets go in and out of all the time, and uh, Americans don't like to talk about that either. So I'm hoping that will give you keen interest into checking uh you know, my website out is a, um, my book is an ebook that is coming out in print. So in the meantime, I create every chapter is a different website that gets hacked all the time. So I have to, I have to have the servers offshore. I really spent a tremendous amount of money protecting the site, and I hope that uh, you'll take a a wink at it. It's called CantonCuba.com. Now, my last question before I let you go is a personal question between you and I. Since your last name is Lopez, and you can see I have a Spanish accent when I choose, what is your descend your descendants tree? Are you Hispa- No, 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 no. Este nombre es mi nombre de marido. Este oh, from your husband. So your husband is Hispanic. Ex-esposo. Ex-esposo, like me. I have an ex-esposa. Right. Yes, so uh, it's my married name. So you're good old American, and uh, your, your husband was la- Latino. Oh, fantastic. So, you know, he's kind of a brown guy like I am. Hey, what again? I call, I, I'm, you know, you know, us Latinos can call each other brown guys because we're brown. You know, we're like, we're the brownies like George Bush would say. You know, I'm not, I'm not a white guy. I'm kind of dark-skinned, Cuban-American. I like to call myself American-Cuban. But to Americans, I tell them, you know, I'm the brown guy. And, you know. I, I guess I just don't think in terms like that. Yeah. Yeah, because you're not Hispanic like I am. But, um... I get to I get to say that I was born in the United States and I'm American either way, but I always insist on Cuban Americans to only call themselves Cuban Americans if they were born in Cuba and naturalized in the United States. Otherwise, call yourself American Cuban. I see. How about just American? 
Well, you know, I hear a lot of people saying that, and uh, the truth is that it sounds great, but it isn't true. You know, uh, we drag we drag our cultures with us. We're a nation of, of cultures, and quite frankly, we're an all-star team as a nation. So, yeah, as much as you want to call yourself American, that fits on a battlefield, especially when you're fighting together in, in, in an army and you're at a, uh, an occupying force, an invading force, or a liberating force. But the truth is, we we come from somewhere, and we... Well, I mean, my ancestors come from Central Europe, but I don't call myself Slovakian-American or American-Slovak. I, I say I'm an American. Well, I, I mean, it's several generations back. That that's the difference. Sisters came over, but... I believe maybe my daughter will do that and my son, but not I. I'm only one generation removed. I think it... After one or two generations, I guess you leave these stuff behind. I, I'm hoping my grandkids would uh, agree with you 100%. But in the meantime, I can't hide the fact that, uh, you know, my parents fought for free Cuba day and night, day and night. My father was very involved in, uh, he served in the Reagan administration as a, a political appointee, uh, very involved in the Contra War and trying to get Castro any way he could. My mom was, just so you know, my mom was uh, the part of the, the incubating group that uh, passed uh, Radio Martí back in 1984 with the Cuba, uh, Cuban-American Foundation. So you could see where I would be motivated to build a, a, a radio station and have a concrete conservative show. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely so. I, I guess my point is simply that when you raise your right hand and uh, you take the oath to the Constitution of the United States, as I've done now three times, um, when, when somebody asks... What are you? I say I'm an American. And that's a beautiful way to end the show. So thank you very much, Claire. I hope I can have you back again. And thank you for all the knowledge you've shared with our audience. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. I hope it. Oh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Take, I did, absolutely. All righty. Take care. Take care. That was uh, Claire Lopez from the Lopez Institute. And you definitely do your homework. She's a plethora of knowledge, and she just wrote this article in Newsmax, and we're so happy to have her here on the Concrete Conservatives. So we're going to end the show. Hope you guys enjoyed it. This is yours truly, Mac on the Rock. And I really, more than anything else, I want you to understand that communism and democracy, Republican democracy, are completely, completely different methods of running society. One believes in you and I, in freedom, the love of life, the advancement and the upper mobility of people, generations and generations. And communism simply is an organization of people who just want to steal from you and I, plain and simple. And it's just a matter of time for us to acknowledge the fact that in the world of politics, communism is the devil, plain and simple. El infierno está con los comunistas. Stay for you, my friends. Time is of the essence. WSQS and Link Radio.